Hey, good morning, guys. Hope you're well. All right, let's uh, let's flip over to uh, Acts chapter 11. We'll finish off Acts 11 this morning. Just going to look at that short little section. It's actually a, a short section, but it has two kind of major themes in it, two topics that are um, of great import, I think, to the to the church today. So we'll uh, look at a couple of those topics and. Um, through the rest of Scripture and, and how these things work out. So, anyway, did you guys survive the rod run? Everybody get some sleep with all the burnouts all night? <laughs> uh, I was driving, driving down to the church this morning. Cause we were in Longview yesterday for the men's conference, and up Sandridge, there was, it was pretty dead, but as I came down uh, this morning, just burnouts everywhere. <laughs> I was like, that's impressive. They didn't even have to seal. They could have just waited till after. Yeah. But, uh, all right, Acts chapter uh, 11. In verse 27 says there, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So just a few verses there, four verses in total, but really quite packed with a lot of different ideas. So this morning, uh, as we kind of dive in, there's two ideas that I want to look at uh, kind of for the most part, and then uh, we're going to kind of let the rest go by the wayside for time's sake. But in this, uh, in this passage here, here's what happens, right? We read it. So in the days, in these days, what days? Remember the, the days of Antioch, right? So Antioch, uh, is born, as it were. A church starts there. Barnabas goes down. We'd spent two weeks talking about Barnabas and his ministry there and what a fantastic ministry it is. And, and even how Barnabas is a real, I think, a role model for us as human beings, as Christians who want to walk with Jesus, uh, because his, the, the, the theme of his life, his nickname, what he was known for is, is that he was encouraging. And I, man, I don't want to be repetitive, but what's a God that, that, that that's what our nicknames were, right? That uh, uh, the other day, um, so because we're doing that new, um, uh, what do you call it, format for our Thursday nights, I've had some extra time. And so the other day, I, I actually drove up to Oysterville and just was kind of walking around, went to the Oysterville um, uh, Cemetery. And we were just, just walking around and, and just praying and, and just kind of reading the headstones. And uh, one of the things that's, that's fascinating about the, the uh, headstones is you'll see, like, uh, there's a couple of, unfortunately, uh, dead twins, you know, one that lived three days, one that lived six months, and, you know, all this, you just can see so much, but they all have, like, the, the couple of words, a lot of people have a couple of words on their headstone, right, um, and some, you know, love, beloved mother, beloved father, and those are great words, and those are words that, that are great to strive for, but I'll tell you what, wouldn't it just encourage her, <laughs> you know, wouldn't it be great that when, when we die, of all the things that people could, could put on our headstones, if we get one, encourage her. And, that, and so for me personally, again, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but what a, what a testimony that the, the, that the kind of the leaders of the church of that time, they looked at that guy and said, you know what this guy is? This guy's just an encourager, and we're going to send him anywhere where encouragement is needed because we know he's not going to criticize we know he's not going to hassle. We know he's not going to complain. We know he's not going to detract. We know he's not going to be selfish. We're going to send this guy because we know when he gets there, he's going to see what God is doing, and he's just going to be 
just a supporter of that and, and a, a blessing to that. So anyway, Barnabas is, a, I think, a tremendous role model. Uh, we didn't necessarily cover it for time's sake, but then Barnabas, he ends up leaving Antioch, but only to go get Paul, right? So he leaves um, Antioch, and maybe he was thinking, I need additional resources to help me teach these, these new believers. Maybe he was thinking, man, Paul has such a keen mind on uh, how the gospel works. I really want to bring him in for this amazing teaching that he's able to give that he does in the synagogues and so forth. Whatever his reason, we don't know. We just know that he goes to get, get Paul and he brings him back. So evidently, uh, there is a decision made in Jerusalem to also send prophets. Now it says, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them was named Agabus. Now, Agabus is going to show up a couple times in the book of Acts. He's here where he uh, prophesies that there is a, uh, a famine coming. And uh, there ends up being multiple famines that, that happen through uh, th- this time in history, or after this time in history, I guess I should say. It is a prophecy. Uh, and later on, when Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, if you remember, it's Agabus that, that uh, takes his belt off and wraps it around Paul's hands and says... The man that owns this girdle is going to be bound like this. Um, and so Paul says, hey, look, I know, I don't know what's waiting for me, but I know that in every city that I go to, the Holy Spirit is testifying to me that bonds uh, and incarceration await me, right? And then we know that he ends up being released for a small, uh, short time, um, and then again is recaptured and beheaded by Nero. So this is who Agabus is, and it brings up an interesting idea first and foremost, and that is the idea of prophets, and really spiritual giftings. Uh, Spiritual giftings can be tough because, you know, in denominations and in Christendom, there's so many different views about it, right? You have everything from there are no giftings anymore, that those were for a specific time, and even sometimes it gets even skinnier that those were for specific people in that time alone, uh, and then you have kind of this other extreme where gifts are just kind of, uh, I don't, I, far be it for me to say, imitated, but they're, they're just, they seem like they can go wild in a, in a, uh, or, or be unchecked in a uh, gathering. So the people that would say that, uh, just for your information, that, that there's no more gifting anymore, those would be, we call them cessationists. And that's not like a rude term, it just means that they believe that the gifts of the Spirit ended with the apostolic age. Uh, and then you have people that believe they're non-cessationists, and they basically believe that the gifts continue to this day. And the great thing about this is that there are people that are giants in the faith, people that love Jesus with their whole heart, and they say, no, there's no more gifts. And yet, there they do, as I would say, personally, they're operating in the gifts. They're giving words of wisdom. They're giving words of prophecy. They're blessing the saints. And then, you know, there's people that say that there's that they're not cessationists, but are deeply afraid of the manifestation of the gifts or nervous about it, you know, what could happen and all these different things. So I always want to be careful when we're talking about the, the different uh, gifts and the gifts of the Spirit, but to remain faithful to the idea that there are gifts of the Spirit, they're very much alive, and that God is doing great things. That's, that's my, my stance on it. If we disagree, that's fine, we can disagree. We can probably still agree, though, that God is working in His church today. And he's working in ways that are very similar to what we see described with this. So the word prophet, or prophetis, essentially, in the Greek, it just it means, or to prophesy, it just means to, to make clear, or to, there's kind of two thoughts to it. One is to make something clearer, or to kind of reveal it, and the other is to, uh, kind of the more traditional sense, what Agabus does here, and that is to declare the future. And so 
is that still happening today? It is, and I believe so. And the reason I believe that is because I've seen it, I've experienced it. We Probably many of us have in ways where somebody is working and operating, listening to the Holy Spirit, and they share with us a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. And we'll talk a little bit about that more later. But there's no, if you go through the scriptures and you look, there's no scripture that ever says that the gifts of the Spirit ended. And that's important. There are some people that look at some verses, uh, for example, in, when Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, uh, he talks about when I was a child, I thought like a child and so forth. And he says, when the perfect has come, then you know, I put away childish things. And they relate the idea of uh, the perfect being the King James Bible. And they say that when the perfect has come, this translation into English of the old thing, when that came, there wasn't need anymore uh, for the gifts of the Spirit. And there's all sorts of different alterations on that and, and different things that, that people would say. I'm not saying that so I can stand up here and say, these people are bad or this is you know, anything like that. I'm standing up just so that you can know that there are arguments against this idea. Um, and, and, and that's okay. Again, whenever we talk about things that could be uh, controversial, as it were. We're not here to stick it to anybody or anything like that. We're just talking about how we could do this. So, that aside, they send prophets. There's multiple prophets, and actually we're going to see these guys in chapter 13 a little later. They uh, seem to be uh, the people that have an influence on how Paul and Barnabas get sent out. But So these prophets, they come down from Jerusalem uh, and to Antioch. And if I can make a side note here, for Jews, anytime they talk about going somewhere else from Jerusalem, they always go down. Uh, Jerusalem is always looked at, it's on a hill, and religiously it's always looked at that anywhere else from Jerusalem in the Jewish culture is a descent to somewhere else, because Antioch is 300 miles to the north. So if you're looking at a map, you would never say, I went down to Antioch when you just traveled 300 miles from the south. Does that make sense? So anyway, just, just so if you've ever wondered, like, why is he saying they went up when that's not how it works on a map? That's why he's doing it. So one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. And I want to kind of skim over some stuff here, uh, cover it briefly. If you look at 1 Corinthians, this idea of prophecy and gifting and how it works, notice it says there that he did it by the Spirit. So that one of the things, when Paul writes to Corinth, flip over to 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul writes to Corinth, one of the, the criticisms that he has, one of the things that he wants to see correction, remember, uh, before I get too far, remember in chapter 1, he says, God has given you all the spiritual gifts in Corinth. So he says, you have all these gifts. And he says, and he's working in you, and he's going to complete his work in you, and he's, there's all these great things for you, right, to this completely dysfunctional church. But when we read about the gifts of the Spirit and how they're being operated, what seems to be implied is that the people in Corinth were oftentimes using the gifts of the Spirit to bring attention to themselves, and, and, and oftentimes using them in an inappropriate manner. And uh, in my experience, sometimes when we want to... Or when we, oh, how would you say it? When folks, maybe that's a better way to put it, that want to deny the gifts of the Spirit, oftentimes what is referred or what's pointed to is misuse of the gifts of the Spirit. And so what's happening here in Corinth is there's, there's misuse of the gifts, and so Paul's going to write to them and say, this is how the gifts work. So this is going to be a, a brief overview uh, that we look at this morning. In 1 Corinthians 
12, he says this, Now concerning spiritual gifts, or literally spirituality, brothers, again, this is the Greek word for brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So the first thing he lays out for them, he says, look, when you were pagans, and, and this is Corinth, right? This, is a, this was a pagan society. This was an incredibly rich city. It was an epicenter for idolatry. There were temples there for, for different uh, uh, pagan idols and so forth. Then he says, when you were doing that, you were led astray to mute idols, idols who could say nothing and do nothing, right? And there's some cool stories, Dagon and whatnot, that illustrate that. But they were mute idols. They have no power. And then he says, however you were led, meaning whichever idol you were led to, whatever pagan stuff you were involved in, he says, it was mute, right? Therefore, so because you have this history, because you have the history of this idolatry and the, the gifts, whether it's bananas or meat or whatever it is, because of this, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is a curse. So the Spirit is never going to criticize Jesus, all right, now there's more to this, and we can do that another time, but the Spirit of God is never going to say that. No one can ever say Jesus is a curse or anathema, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, in this case, he is not saying that uh, no one can say Jesus is Lord. I, I'm, I'm fairly certain that we could go out to downtown right now and get people and say, do you believe in Jesus? No, I do not. Could you please say Jesus is Lord? I can't say it. That's not what he's saying. The idea here isn't that people can't physically utter the words that Jesus is Lord if they don't have the Holy Spirit in them. The idea is that to, for that message, for that reality, that lifestyle to, be, to, to live like Christ, John reiterates this when he says anyone who does righteousness is born of him. And it's not just done, anyone who does good works. The idea there is anyone who bears fruit of righteousness, Jesus' fruit, the fruit of faith, the fruit of true love, agape love, these things. He says that can only be done and be had by people who are born of God. So in the same way, he's saying, look, this, <clears throat> the communication of Jesus as Lord can only be done through the Holy Spirit. That's the only way that that true message can go out from someone in truth. Verse 4, now there are varieties of gifts, and this is super important. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. So he kind of says this triune, there's three things here. He says there's varieties of gifts, and we'll touch that one later because he lists some gifts here in a second. So there are varieties of gifts. Why is it important to realize that in, this, in these three statements that there's varieties? Have you ever noticed that whatever your natural bent is, is what you believe to be true? You ever notice that? So if you're really good at something, a lot of times you can just think like, everybody should do this. This is what it should be like. This, everybody should do it like me. I have this, you know, whatever. It's important that he says, look, there's varieties of gifts, there's varieties of service, uh, and, and all the, in, in these different in the, uh, varieties of operations, but it's the same Spirit. 
the same Lord. It's really important to realize that there is variety in the house of God, in, in Christ's body, and it's not always going to be the same. Uh, you know, one of the, the uh, uh, people that has been a blessing in my own life it was actually the second guy that ever came to our church. So Karina, if you guys know Karina, she was the first person that ever came to our church. She, she was the first person that showed up uh, in, in the house in Owaco uh, when we had a Bible study. The, the, I think it was like the second or, th- or third Tuesday night. Uh, we had a Bible study in Flint Wright's house, and she was the first person that ever came. And the, the, the second person that ever came was a guy named Dave Hurd that Karina invited to the Bible study. Dave Hurd has gone on to be with the Lord. I think he died about uh, four years ago now, three, four years ago. But the, see, Dave Hurd, he was like a mystical guy. Like sometimes you talk to him, and, and it would be like this mysticism. And I'm not criticizing him like, oh, he was a weirdo. Uh, no, he just, he just had a different way of thinking than like for myself. And, and he had this very like, I can't even, I don't know how to put it other than mystical. But I'll tell you what, that dude could like throw trash in the street and people would get saved somehow. That guy would meet people and preach the gospel to people. And, and, and like he and I didn't jive in like a natural sense. We weren't going like to go roller skating together or something like that. Like, but, but this guy was used of the Lord. Whenever I, whenever I read about the gift of evangelism, I think Dave heard. It did not matter what that guy did, who he talked to. Someone came to church. Someone got saved. It was, it was amazing. And I think that we have to be open to the fact, one, there's, there's varieties of gifts. Some people don't have your gift, and you don't have some people's gifts. And that's okay. And we'll talk more about that. But then the second portion, he says this. There's varieties of gifts, but it's the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. So not only are there varieties of gifts, but there's varieties of ways people can serve. Labors for people to do. There's different varieties for that. There's, and and that's, that's very broad, right? You have administrative services. You, and it, really the word there is the same word where we get our word deacon from, diakonos. And it literally means servant, different ways to serve. There's varieties of service. Sometimes we can think, well, if I serve this way, if I'm minded this way, then you know what? Everybody should be minded this way. No, they shouldn't. We used to have a guy here, a, a, just a beloved guy. Uh, he moved, but for whatever reason, he always made sure the trashes were empty. He was very conscious of it, and, and, and he would be here long past everybody that, that left and, and making sure the trashes were empty. He would throw them in his truck or in his car if, if there wasn't room in the trash. So for whatever reason, this was very important to him. And check it out. It's a huge blessing, right? Nobody likes trash. There's been a couple times where we've walked into the church and it smells like sour milk on like a sour morning or on a sour, sour morning, a Sunday morning. There's been times like I've walked in here on a Sunday morning, you know, 6.30 in the morning or whatever. I get in here and it just smells terrible. And you'd be like, oh, okay, I forgot to empty the trash and there's milk or whatever it is, all sorts of stuff. So there's different types of services, but those services, none of them are minimized and, and, and we're going we're gonna to get to that portion. There's varieties of activities or operations. There's different ways of doing things. So some people might even have the same service or the same gifting. You can have a Dave Hurd who's Mr. You know, mysterious and talks about the, the heavenlies and the angels descending and just, you know, and people are getting saved. And then you can have the Ken Hams 
who everything, everything is technical and everything, right? You, answers in Genesis, and you can go to the Answers in Genesis webpage and you can see these scientific breakdowns of these answers and stuff like that. Dave Hurd was never going to do that. And guess what? Ken Ham was never going to do what Dave Hurd did. But there's two guys who had this radical influence on the kingdom of heaven. I honestly wonder how many hundreds, if not thousands of people in the course, I think Dave Hurd died when he was 70-something. He got saved when he was 40 in Portland, a radical alcoholic, gets saved, you know, gets clean, starts walking with Jesus. I don't know how many people received Jesus in those 30 to 33 years that he was still alive, but I bet it's hundreds, if not thousands. Everybody who walked in his store heard about Christ. He was mystical. Ken Ham, as far as I know, from what I read from his articles, is not very mystical. He's very methodical. He's very pragmatic. There's different operations but it's the same Lord. We're just different people. And the sooner that we can learn that we're different people, the better off we're going to be. You know, I think another area that really stands out in that, some people are empaths. In other words, some people, when they see something happen, they, they feel it. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm not an empath, so I'm not speaking out of experience. But when they see death or they see, in fact, me not being an empath, to be honest, is part of how I got saved. I remember being about 11 or 12 years old, and there was a flight in China, and it went right into the side of a mountain, and like 248 people were killed. And what happened is the tail section of the plane fell off, and my family, we used to basically eat dinner around the TV for the most part. We had, we had TV trays, and we'd eat dinner, and I remember about, yeah, age 11, age 12, I remember just kind of eating my dinner and just kind of watching this going, oh, whatever. And I remember looking over, and my mom had, like, tears coming down her face. And I thought, why, why are you crying? She goes, all those people died. And the reason it became part of my testimony, because that was, a, that was like a defining moment in my life where I realized I don't care. I looked at these people, I looked at the weeping families at the crash site, I'm watching, I'm taking this all in, and it meant nothing to me. I was hard-hearted. It meant absolutely nothing to me. And it, it made me wonder, like, why don't I care about this? I know I should care about this. I know that death should affect me. I know that this should be, but it, it did not. And that, honestly, it scared me, because I thought to myself, wow, what kind of a person can watch this? and actually just really not care about it. So there's, there's, there's people that, that feel that. So me as a non-empath, um, like when I see tragedy, when I, I can intellectually say that is tragic, and I understand intellectually why those people are dis dis discouraged or angry or have you know, anxiety or grief, I intellectually understand that, but I do not feel it. So when people come to me in their grief, intellectually I respond and I, I, I do want to put my arm around them. I do want to say, because I, I do care, but I don't feel the care. Does that make sense? I don't, I'm not able to emotionally attach myself to that. So what does that make me? Typically a bad comforter. But then there's people that have empath, the empathy I should say, and they feel that and they make amazing comforters. And then they're able to come alongside and weep with people. As Paul says, we should weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice. But for whatever reason, for me personally, for the most part, I'm physically unable to feel that. But there are other people that really do. But the great thing is about not being an empath 
you know, our church isn't a mega church, but it's 200 people. And, well, I don't know what it is now with COVID, but <laughs> it was like 200 people, right? And you can't, you can't bear the sorrows of 200 people. You can't do it. You'd be crushed. Not that I'm saying I'm Jesus. I'm not making that point at all. My point is just that I, I know a lot of the sorrows that people are going through. I talk to a lot of the sorrows. And so I have to, as a human being, be able to take those sorrows and put it in the that sucks box and then move on and teach on Sunday mornings or whatever. But the empath is the person that doesn't have to do that and is able to sit here and is able to sit with them and put their armor on them and cry with them and, and pray with them. The body needs everyone. The body needs empaths. The body needs, you know, weirdos like me, I guess. But that's it's everybody. Different operations, different gifts. And Paul's going to go on. He's, he's talking about all these great things. And he says there, he says, uh, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So each one of us that have these varieties, same God uh, that empowers, I skipped that part, this is, there's varieties, of, but it's the same God who empowers them all, them, them all and everyone. So as, as a non-empath, I can't look at someone else and go, what is your problem? Wipe those tears off your face. Why are you having trouble functioning? Just stink and do it. Do what you have to do. And, and like, that would be inappropriate for me. And likewise, an empath could look at me and say, what is your problem? How broken are you that you're not weeping over this? Why aren't you destroyed over this? It's the same God that empowers one of us to put their arm around and weep and the other one to go on and do what they need to do. He goes on, he says this. He says, uh, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Each one of us have the gifts and have the Spirit manifest those gifts out of us for the common good. It's not just for ourselves. It's for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to the other an utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another works of, uh, working of miracles to uh, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues, and all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each individual uh, one. To, excuse me, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And he's making the point that the gifts of the Spirit, the manifestations of the Spirit, they come through individuals in different ways, in different service types, in different operations in those service types, different personalities, different giftings, all these things. They're coming forward, and it's from God. He's giving those things, and he gives those different manifestations, those different gifts, as he wills. This is really important. As God wants, he gives those. And we, at some point, if we have time, we could go through each one of those, those individual ideas uh, because they are tremendous. Um, just, to, just to note a couple. The, the manifestation of the Spirit to another faith by the same Spirit. You might say, wait, wait, wait what? I thought we already had faith. That's, why we, that's how we got saved. How is it that a manifestation of the Spirit is faith? Well, have you ever been in a situation where everything is just horrific and there's just one person just like, it's going to be okay? It's going to be okay. How do you know it's going to be okay? I don't know. Because God is great. That's all I know. It's going to be okay. Or have you ever been in a situation where you thought to yourself, there's no way I can do this, and then all of a sudden as you're praying, you're just like, we got this. Or, or sometimes maybe the Lord encourages your heart to do something you would never do. I remember one time I was sitting up at a coffee shop in Ocean Park, and I was just studying um, for uh, whatever service that we were going to do. 
and I was just praying, and, and, and I felt the Lord, because I'm not a very charismatic person as far as like the gifts of the Spirit. I believe in them, but I, I guess, I don't know. I wish I was more open to them. So I'm sitting at my table, and I'm listening to my music, and I'm studying, and for maybe the first time like ever in my life, I felt the Lord say, you should go tell that girl, the girl working by the table, you should go tell her that I see her and I care about her. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. And I was like, is it, if, this is, if this is me or if this is you, I need some sort of definitive reality here because I don't do that. That's not how I roll. And this place is packed. What, and she looked like, and again, don't judge a book by its cover. I agree with that. But she looked like a person, was dressed like a person that probably would not want to hear from Jesus, if that makes any sense. I don't know what Jesus listeners you know, dress like. Collared shirts, I guess. I don't know. But she did not appear that she was going to receive it. And so I'm sitting in there, and, and uh, the Lord says it to me. And I say, nope, you got to reiterate that because I, that could just be me. It could be some weird feeling. Maybe I drank too much coffee. I don't know. I'm not doing that. So I'm just doing my thing. And I look up, and it turns out there's this, the table next to where she's serving at. It's just like all these Christian dudes, and they're just talking about the Bible. And I'm like, nope, not a good enough sign. Like, I'm not doing this. You know, because that was one of my other objections. Like all these people around me, I just think I'm some kook, and I'm just, you know, oh, I don't want to, you know. And then I, I, I go, I, you know what? You're going to have to create an opportunity if I'm actually going to go up there and do this because I don't do this. And I'm not kidding you. I'm, and I look up, and everyone had left the restaurant, the coffee shop, and I was like, no, <laughs> why? So I'm like, I'm going to give this some time. I'm a great man of faith, you can tell. So I'm going to give this some time. So I like close my laptop, finishing my coffee. Is somebody going to walk in? And I, I pack all my stuff up, and I go. I finally, I'm on my way out. Nobody's come in now for like 15 minutes. So I go up to this girl, and I say, I go, hey, do you, do you, do you ever go to church? She goes, yeah, sometimes I do. I said, well, I don't ever do this. But I feel like the Lord wants me to tell you that he sees you and he loves you. And now I feel really weird, so I'm going to leave. <laughs> and she goes, okay. And she just gets this gigantic smile on her face. And she just goes, thank you. And I pretty much ran out of there because I felt so weird about it. Not glorifying my behavior, I'm just saying that it happened. And, and really, you know, that day, I believe the Lord gave me a gift of faith to be able to go and do that, because that's just not what I do. It's not, I don't roll up on people on the, on the regular and be like, this is the word of the Lord to you. But it was, you know, the gift of faith. Sometimes he encourages us. Sometimes we have this amazing faith through the, the radicalness of trials, and it's supernatural faith. He says there that we have the, the gifts. This is interesting. Another gifts of healing. One of the things that the Scripture never covers, and I'm not here to make a device, a division, but the, never, the Scripture never talks about gifted healers. It talks about gifts of healing. And people, I'm not saying that there aren't people that that gets used uh, through regularly. Um, I'm, I personally am always a little skeptical when someone wants to say, uh, I'm a gifted healer. I heal people. Um, because I've had experience in the past where someone said that, and I said, well, I'll take some prayer. I have this thing going on, and I got prayed for and didn't get healed. 
So I think that we want to be careful with this. But God does give gifts of healing. And that's why when we pray, we say, Lord, please heal this person. And it's not unbelief to say we want your will over what we, that we want this healing. We're, our heart and our desire is you would heal this person. And we know that you can do that. But we ask that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I don't think that's an unreasonable uh, approach to it. You see, for example, when Paul says, hey, I had to leave Trophimus behind sick. So evidently, Trophimus got to stay sick. So I don't think it's, it's, a, it's, it's unwise. But we do want to pray for the gifts of healing to be manifest in us. The working of miracles to another prophecy. And he goes on. He's going he's gonna to go on to talk about how the body fits together and how each person is to be uh, contributing and all these great things. For time's sake, we're not going to look at all that. But I encourage you, you can look at 12 through 14, uh, chapters 12 through 14, for some pretty substantial instruction on how the gifts of the Spirit work. But all I have to say is Agabus, Agabus is not a, uh, a lone ranger. He's not the only one. He's not the only person out there that's able to uh, convey and to give not only the future, but also an unveiling of what God wants to do in a life. And we ought to pray for the, for the gifts of, excuse me, gift of prophecy. We ought to pray to be able to uh, minister to individuals and to help them along their way. That's where we're called to that, um, to, to, to help one another. Uh, lastly, back here in the book of Acts, or should, secondly in the book of Acts, he says here uh, in verse 29, so the response to this prophecy that Agabus shares is, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So there's a few things here uh, to be noted, but we're going to stick to this idea of giving. Not so that we can bang the war drum here. We actually have a very giving church, and we're doing just fine through all of the um, uh, COVID stuff and, and people needing to stay home for their safety and so forth. So we're not here to bang the war drum. But the response to this, it says, it's interesting too, it says, so the disciples determined. This isn't just that Paul or Barnabas and, or, or some, some uh, letter came down from Jerusalem, but people's response to this was, hey, you know what? We need to make sure that other people are taken care of. And so they take a collection and they uh, end up sending that collection that they take from Antioch, and they send it with uh, Barnabas and Saul, uh, and eventually they go back to Jerusalem, and they give the money uh, to the elders in Jerusalem. And really, just to point out the fact that in, this is very interesting about in giving, there's no formula for it. And, and I, I want to, maybe we can set some people free today in this sense. Tithing, tithe being the 10%, is pre-Old Testament in a sense. It's be, and what I mean by pre-Old Testament, not just the, old, the first part of our Bibles, but it's before the law. And so tithing comes from the idea of when Abraham, and ultimately, honestly, if you read, I've read a lot of history books about this, no one necessarily can pinpoint where tithing, giving 10%, came from. Because it just shows up with Abraham. Abraham goes to Melchizedek, and when he uh, meets Melchizedek, he tithes to Melchizedek. So then later on in the law, there's all these different types of giving. It's interesting. You might have read in the New Testament like the temple tax and things like this. 
So if you had a child you gave to the temple, if you had, you know, there, there were different gifts that you could give to the tabernacle and then the temple. You might, you know, Jesus even talks about the widow's mite, that she drops in two pennies and it's more than anybody else has given. You know, these, the, you see heaven's economy in that way. And the reason I bring up the tithe is because the tithe is not a New Testament principle. The tithe is mentioned two or three times in the New Testament, and it's always Jesus mentioning it in the Old Testament. He's never saying that you have to tithe. Now, having said that, it is important that giving is very much in the New Testament. And again, this is not coming from some place of need or trying to drum it up or anything like that. We're doing great. In fact, we have such a faithful congregation here that we, you know, I actually put out kind of a public service announcement in our, off our not YouTube or Facebook or whatever stuff that said, look, we're doing great. If you're hurting, just keep your money <laughs> or give it to somebody else right now. We're doing fine. We, we, don't, we don't need your money. So this is not a... a so my, my, I was telling my wife, she said, don't make it weird. You always make giving weird. So I'm trying not to make it weird. <laughs> I'm trying not to make it weird, I, but I, I'm trying to also not... I'm not banging the war drum. So I promise this is the last time I'm saying it. But giving is very much a biblical principle. So these people, they have this response to uh, this need that's going to come and the disciples get together, and they decide, we're going to give. And how do they give? This is interesting. Everyone according to his ability. And then we're not going to close the back doors and start handing something around, start shouting, give to it hurts, or something like that. But they gave to their ability. They gave what they could. They didn't go beyond their ability. They gave what they could. Now, I'm not making any rules or any restrictions of what God would call you to give or do or anything like that, but this is how they did it. They gave to their ability. The other one example we have, we already covered, is Acts chapter 5 or 4, I should say. And that's where people sold their property and they, they gave money to the, uh, to the apostles and they were able to distribute it. But the scripture does have a, some pretty encouraging things about how we can give. If you look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. There's a, a lot of verses, too, that we won't turn to right now, but there's a lot of verses that talk about the, the destructive attitude of holding on. And I think that one of the things that giving does, not that I think it's true, one of the things that giving does is it releases us from our, our perceived need to have to have stuff or money. It enables us to let go. So Paul, writing to Corinth, because they had promised to give some money for some uh, struggling brethren, he says there in verse 6, the point is this. you got to love that. I love This is the point. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now this doesn't always mean, it can mean, but it doesn't always mean that if you're a miser, God won't give you more money. That, that could be true. And, and you can make an argument in the Scripture that if you are a miser, then a lot of times God's not going to bless you with the ability to give if you're not willing to give. But it goes way beyond that into the idea that if you have an attitude that says, I'm going to sow sparingly, I'm going to make sure I keep mine, you miss out on so much more than some sort of just sow the seed, get more money kind of attitude. You miss out on spiritual fruit. You miss out on the freedom of being free from covetousness. You miss out on the, the freedom of not having to put trust in or rely on or find joy in stuff or money. 
And so when he says here, look, if we sow sparingly, we'll reap sparingly, it's not just, it's not just money. There are plenty of people that are rich because they're misers, right? This is not a physical law. There are plenty of people who have millions of dollars. I watched a YouTube the other day. It was actually very fascinating. It was based on people that were millionaires and, and people that worked um, uh, minimum wage jobs. And they just had a discussion on money and how you should be careful with it. And the fascinating thing about every single one of the millionaires in this particular group, they were all new money, meaning they didn't come from oil, they didn't come from royal family, they didn't, it, was, it was all new money. And every one of them said the same thing, about five of them, they all said the same thing. I never went anywhere, I didn't have a girlfriend, I didn't have a boyfriend, I just did my business, and I did this, and, I, and it was this, I forsook everything to make sure I got this money. And so when their, their point was like, you could be a millionaire too if you were willing to do that. And what a lot of people found that were in those lower paying jobs, they said, well, we don't want that. And, he goes, and the millionaires saying, well, there you go. This is what we wanted. But many of those millionaires also, one of the men said, he said, I told myself when I made my first million, I would get the Lamborghini I wanted. And he goes, but then once I had my first million, I didn't want to give it away. And so I didn't, want to, I didn't want to buy a Lamborghini. I wanted to keep my first million. Then when I got two million, I said, then I'll get my Lamborghini. And he says, I still didn't buy it because I thought, I don't want to get that. I, I need more than my two million. I got to keep my two million. So these people, I'm not saying they did anything wrong. It's not for me to judge them. But they decided in their life that they would lack certain fruits, relational fruit, sleep, comfort, to hold on to that money. So here, in the statement that Paul's making, he says, look, if you, sow, if you sow sparingly, if you keep back from other people, then you're going to reap sparingly, even on a physical plane and also on a spiritual plane. But not just the idea that if you don't give money away, God won't give you money. That's not necessarily true. That's not an across-the-board truth. Many rich people give nothing to other people. They just make money. Verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We're never to give or to help other people out of compulsion, out of have to. Does that make sense? Our giving is always to be as the Spirit leads us and is what we decide in our hearts. This is the biblical standard. He says, um, he says for God loves a cheerful giver. And again, that word, it means a hilarious giver. Like somebody who's just slamming it in the box, just laughing like, oh, this is the best. So if my heart is not hilarious about giving, if my heart is not joyful about giving, that all that is is a symptom of my value system, right? It's a symptom of what I, what I believe my security is, what I believe has value, what's going to, you know, all these, that's all, it's just a symptom. So if I find myself stingy about giving, 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 the goal isn't to just, under compulsion, go, fine, I'm going to the box in the back. Mm, there's your money. You're welcome, Jesus. You know, that's, that's not the application. The application is to, to, to figure out, okay, why do I need money so much? Why is it so important to me? Why wouldn't I want to help my brethren in need? And then lastly, he says, he says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures 
forever. For he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now, even though there's no promise that says if you're, or, or, or penalty, I guess, that says if you're a miser, God won't bless you, there is a promise that says that if you're not a miser, if you're willing to give, that he's the God who gives the seed. He's the God who gives the bread. And that he will make you sufficient to give whatever needs to be given whenever it needs to be given. And he has a promise for those that are generous. And you can look at many people throughout history, uh, uh, J.C. Penney's, uh, that was the testimony of his life. As, as fast as he could give away millions was as fast as he could make them. Uh, but uh, anyway, so you have Agabus, the prophet. There's gifts. They're still alive. We got to pray for those. And we have uh, also this idea that uh, when, when it's God-ordained, when God has called us to, that we ought to have a willing heart. And when we don't, let's bring that to the Lord and be honest about it. We don't want to pierce ourselves through with many sorrows. We don't want to... Uh, in a sense, uh, gain the whole world and, and lose our own self, our soul, who we are. Uh, we want to be those that are walking with Jesus, blessing his people, and involved in his kingdom, and it will work out great. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your provision in our lives. Lord, thank you that we get to do things like eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Thank you that we have, uh, as far as I know, all of us here have roofs, of shoes. Lord, you've been very, very kind to us, and we thank you for that. Help us to have um, light fingers on this world. Help us to be able to let go and to give. Lord, help us to, that our, our help, uh, to acknowledge that our help comes from you and not from anywhere else. You're very kind. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys.